Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. Sometimes it's just me, and other weeks I'm in conversation with another rabbi or a Jewish thought leader. All right, welcome everyone. Let's get right to it because we have a lot to talk about this week. The Parsha this week is called Pinchas. It is from Numbers chapter 25, verse 10, through the very beginning of chapter 30. A lot of things happen in Pinchas, but among them, and what we're going to talk about, is that Pinchas, the title character, who is a priest and a grandson of Aaron, the high priest, is rewarded for an act of violence that he committed at the end of last week's Parsha. At the very end of Balak, we're told that Israelite men are sleeping with Midianite women. This is presumed to be a cultic act. They are committing idolatry, uh, worshipping the Midianite gods. And Pinchas kills an Israelite man and a Midianite woman, essentially mid-act. At the beginning of this parsha, he is rewarded by God with a Brit Shalom, a covenant of peace. Now, I'm lucky to be able to have a conversation about this parsha today with Rabbi Stacy Blank. She's an old friend of mine and a rabbi in Jerusalem. We'll introduce her somewhat briefly at the beginning of the interview and then more fulsomely later on. For those who are newer to the podcast and maybe haven't heard one of our interviews before, a reminder that the first portion of our discussion is, as always, about the Torah portion. In this case, it's about 15 minutes. And then afterwards, there's a very short break, and then we continue talking. We'll talk about life in Israel, about liberal Jewish life in Israel, and we'll also talk about the use of feminine language in liturgy, in Jewish prayer, and why it's important to recover the feminine aspect of God and of people in that prayer setting. It's really a very interesting conversation, and I invite you to stick around for all of it if you can. Rabbi Stacy Blank, welcome to 7-Minute Torah. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And you and I have known each other a really long time. We were students together in university at George Washington University circa, what, 1997-ish? Yeah, 1995. Is there 95 to 99? Yeah. yeah, and you're a few years older than me. And of course, we went to rabbinical school also back in Jerusalem in 2000 and. Too. That's right. That's right. Today, you are a rabbi in Jerusalem and the incoming director of education and leadership development for the World Union for Progressive Judaism. We're going to talk about Pinchas today. And Pinchas, as you pointed out to me by email, is an extremist. He, um, in last week's Parsha, he killed two people and in almost like a zealous fit of rage for, for God. And then this week, he is rewarded for it. The parasha, the Torah says that he receives a Brit Shalom, a covenant of peace. So you pointed out to me the dissonance of that. Let's talk about that for a minute. What do you think is going on here? Well, I, I had to chuckle a little bit when you said they were very excited to talk about this Torah portion, because I actually find this to be one of the two most challenging and difficult Torah portions in, in the Torah, the other one being Korach. I think it's extremely challenging to deal with 
with with Pinchas. And we as rabbis throughout the thousands of generations have always tried to work it out. And I personally never gotten to a very satisfactory answer because on the one hand, we could say, okay, he, he was a zealot and God appreciated Pinchas because Pinchas was fighting for God. So of course we all want a person to be on our side. And if it's a righteous cause, is any action condonable? And that could be one interpretation of, of this parasha, the story portion. The other side could be, well, okay, Pinchas acted in a, in a very spontaneous and, um, and destructive way. And while God appreciated that uh, Pinchas was, was acting on his behalf, it, God didn't want to encourage this kind of behavior going forward. And that's what God did in giving him the breach shalom, the, the covenant of peace in a way, and the rabbis also came to interpretations like this, like you've, you've, uh, you've made your statement, you, you've shown uh, your, what side you're on, and, and it's enough. You're, you're right. We're not the first generation to look at this and say there's something challenging, something uncomfortable about it. That in, in the Talmud, the rabbis say essentially something like, if Pinchas had asked permission, he would have been told no. He did it. It served its end. Uh, but if he had asked the answer would have been no, don't do that. So that I think shows us that previous generations of, of rabbis and of Jews were also uncomfortable with the idea that the ends might justify, might have to justify the means that this, this violent means of killing a person was, um, what was being apparently celebrated by the Torah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go a little further with that and then I'll take the other side. There's a story that I really like. I like the continuation is that when we get to the book of Joshua um, and the, the tribes conquered the land and we, we have already this uh, notion that two, two and a half tribes didn't want to settle in the land. And they came to an agreement with, with Moses that they would go in and they would, they would help to conquer the land, but that they would settle on the east bank of the Jordan, which technically was not going to be part of the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened in the book of Joshua. Everything, everything took place. And then they said, okay, we're done. We helped you to conquer the land. We're going back to the land that, that we agreed upon. And they do that. And when they get to the border, they, they set up a monument because they want their children to remember, even if they live in the other land, that they're still a part of this people. And Joshua heard about this and he got really worked up about it. He thought they were setting up a monument for idol worship. So who does he send to go check up on them? A leader by the name of Pinchas. And the rabbis, of course, will say it's the same Pinchas. And he sends him out. But what does this Pinchas do? He doesn't run up and kill the leaders in a fit of zealotry. He talks to them. He says to them, hey, guys, what are you doing here? Why did you set up this monument? And of course, when he speaks with them, he can get an answer, get an explanation. They can work everything out and everyone can go home alive and in peace. So the rabbis say that this is, uh, in a sense, that Pinchas did tshuva. He made repentance from his zealous act, previous zealous act, and, and, and in a sense, uh, learned from this breach shalom, from this covenant of peace, how to work out your your problems or, or disagreements or perhaps even misunderstandings. Right. It's funny. It never occurred to me that that wasn't the same Pinchas, 
But I like that idea that Pinchas somehow learns that this Brit Shalom, which I, I always saw it as kind of a, re a reward for the action, but you're construing it instead as a learning mechanism that, you know, we like your passion, God says, but let's just tone down the methodology a bit. Let's learn some Shalom here and learn how to be, to be passionate, but also to play nicely in the sandbox, essentially, to be nice to others and to, and to, and to treat others with, with Derek Eretz. You know, I want to be very aware that I'm reading this text with my liberal uh, sunglasses, my, my liberal rose colored glasses. And, and I don't want to deny how that influences how I, I choose to read text. Um, but I'm also want to be aware of that. I think part of our job is to help people be aware of what we're coming to ourselves when we approach a text. And that being said, I want to be really aware that there are other Jews who ascribe more to the other interpretation, that this text is saying that, that God calls us to act on God's behalf, even if it means behaving violently against our own people. And I don't know if that is a, is a foundation text or driving text for what we sometimes see as as a violence uh, on, on the behalf of what I would call Jewish zealots in in uh, in, is, in, in Jerusalem and in Israel, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a, an informing text, uh, and it at least reminds me that there are people who who do believe there are Jews who do believe under certain circumstances that that violence is is one way of defending defending God's name of doing God's will in the world. Um, and Jerusalem is, of course, a city where you where you do see these extremes of of, of Jewish action. And I know that um, you know many of our listeners will have heard about an incident at the at the Kotel at the Western Wall a couple of weeks ago, there where there was an an attack on um, a well, I thought one liberal bat mitzvah, but I, you told me before that there were several benot mitzvah going on and you were actually there. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you experienced and maybe what you take away from that? Yeah, there was a few, few bar and bat mitzvah ceremonies. This was on Rosh Chodesh, uh, Tammuz, ironically of all months, the months when we're beginning to, to enter a period of mourning as a Jewish people for the destruction of the temple and when we talk about the destruction of the second temple, we say that one of the reasons was because of Sinat Chinam, because of baseless hatred among Jews. And there could not be more irony in this happening on, on the, the new month of Tammuz, where we, we begin that period. So uh, this is connected to the women of the wall. I don't want to go too much into that right now, but women of the wall meets uh, monthly, Rosh Chodesh, in the women's section of the Western Wall very early in the morning. And what happened on this particular Rosh Chodesh, it's summer, it's hot. So we often, when we have families, uh, especially who come from abroad on a trip, we want to celebrate Bar and Bat Mitzvah, uh, encourage them to hold the ceremony early in the morning when the weather's still nice here in Jerusalem. And uh, this coincided with Rosh Chodesh, uh, with the new month. And the the typical, uh, I would say, you know, violence that, that happens on, in, on Rosh Chodesh uh, directed towards women of the wall spilled over into the egalitarian section. Now, if anybody who hasn't been in Jerusalem, these sections are not connected one to the other. You have to exit the big plaza of the Western Wall and you go through security and then you go out and down a path and then you go down some more stairs and walk across 
across a, a, a bit of a pathway to get to a platform, which is a bit isolated, and that is the egalitarian section. It has some some guards in a sense, and there is a rabbi from the conservative movement who she's the administrator and uh, and is directing things there. So in this particular morning, we're about three or four uh, bar and bat mitzvah ceremonies, and young men uh, and boys. I say ranging between eight and fourteen or fifteen. Uh, come into the area, they're shouting, they're blowing whistles, uh, they're shouting uh, obscenities. At one point, I didn't see it, but they were ripping up uh, prayer books, liberal prayer books. Uh, There were maybe two police officers at the time. And what they do is that they're very well trained also in what they say and what they say that we're doing as a desecration. They see it as a desecration of Judaism. Uh, to have women and men praying together, to have women reading from the Torah, wearing a tallit, leading leading tefillah, leading prayer. And what they do is they come right up into your face, but they don't touch you. And in a sense, they're trying to goad you into violence. Because when I asked the police officer, why aren't you doing something? They said, only when they commit a crime. And a crime is physical violence. Now, I said, what about the threat of physical violence? That is also a crime. And when I asked Aloria about it, I said, yes, technically, yes, it's, it's a gray area. It can go either way when someone's just threatening you with violence and not physically being violent. But when someone's physically violent to you, that's a clear grounds for making an arrest. And they would come literally up to you. They would shout. The noise was unbearable. But the police... That was their approach, that they wouldn't or couldn't do something. They, they believe, these, these boys, really children, they believe that, that the act that you're doing, which is, of course, celebrating a bat mitzvah, men and women together, you know, a girl reading Torah, is, a, is an act of desecration. And so they're, they're coming to disrupt it in, in their mind in the name of God, in the name of, of their own zealous protection of Judaism, right? You could say that there are those who believe that, and those are... That's part of the reason why they're being sent. I see, I see children. I see children who are being taught a certain thing, being told what to do. It's the summertime. They're a little bored. They have time on their hands. And, you know, let's go make some noise. Let's, you know, let's go, let's go shake things up. So, you know, there certainly is this ideal, ideology behind it. You know, it's, there's a debate now going on in, in our circles. Where does this come from? Is it is an ideology? Is it a is it a power play? Uh, because in Israel, in every place, but also in Israel, Judaism is political because it, it's a division of resources. It's it's our taxpayer money that also go to uh, to religious services and and education, um, whether it's Jewish uh, heritage in secular schools or it's funding ultra orthodox yeshivas. So uh, there is the ideological, I think, uh, point, and there also is uh, some practical political power plays uh, that are involved in this entire issue. And it's a part. It's a part of a reality. It's an ugly part of our reality. You know, it's a question when people come to Israel on a trip. What do they experience in Israel? We want them to love Israel. There's so much to love about Israel, but on the other hand, we're all partners in this reality. And the reality is that Israel is a divided society in terms of religion. There are extremist elements. What do we do? What do we do? Do we do we shout at one another? Are we in a war against one another? 
Do we try to create dialogue together? Do we find a space for everyone? Well, and, and it seems, I mean, to bring it back to the Parsha, it seems like the message is that you need to somehow move from Pinchas 1 to Pinchas 2, right? That the, what is that Brit Shalom? What is it that can enable the Jewish people to move from the, the violent extremism of this week's Parsha to the version of Pinchas that you mentioned later on in Joshua, who's able to sit down and talk to still hold passionately to what he believes, but to talk to others rather than acting violently. And clearly we as a Jewish people haven't figured out how to do that yet because we're still experiencing these kinds of these kinds of incidents. But I wonder if that's ultimately the, the lesson or the question, how do we make that transition? I believe in dialogue. Uh, I believe that it's, it's, it's so important for us, wherever we are, to be engaging with people who are different than ourselves. Uh, not always easy. And, and I will admit, I do enjoy living among people who have similar values and similar lifestyle. But that being said, I think we have to actively seek out engagement, whether it's, you know, for example, in Israel, we have people who live in the center of the country in the cities versus people who live in the periphery in the outlying areas whether it's between uh, Jews and, and Arabs, we're in Jerusalem, they're also my very close neighbors, Palestinians in the, in the city, or Jews of different practices and, and beliefs. I, it's important for me to go and hear what settlers say and how, how they see uh, the reality. So I, I believe that there are many things to do. And one very important and central thing for us to do is to seek and engage in dialogue. I think that's a perfect place to end um, this portion of our discussion. Let me say, amen. Hey there, hope you're enjoying the conversation. I know I am. We're going to get back to it in just a moment. But first, I want to say a few thank yous to the people who became sponsors or supporters of 7-Minute Torah this week. So thank you to Stephen Philipson, Brian Etkin, and Beth and Steve Orlansky. It really does make a difference in terms of helping me to be able to continue to record and even expand the podcast. Some of you have asked me how to become a supporter. Just go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash 7MinuteTorah. And I'll put that in the episode notes as well. And now let's get back to our interview with Rabbi Stacy Blank. Welcome back. If it's okay, I'd love to continue this conversation about Jerusalem. Uh, how long have you lived in Jerusalem now? 17 years. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more, sort of more broadly, about what's it like being a Reform rabbi in in Israel, but more specifically in Jerusalem. Okay, so first, first I want to speak a little bit about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a divided city. Uh, in some places you can see literally walls. In other places, it's more of an imaginary boundary. Then you have the northern part of the city, northwest, which is mainly ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods. And you have East Jerusalem, which is mainly Arabs, Palestinians. And then you have uh, the southern part of Jerusalem, which is where, where I live. Uh, and, uh, and I believe in this part of Jerusalem, we have the most Jewishly pluralistic population in the world. So when I'm walking around my my neighborhoods, my my bubble, 
I feel the most at home in the world. I can pick, you know, six, seven minyanim and, and any given uh, given Shabbat and experience something new and, and wonderful. Uh, I can also choose to go to the park and, and mix with secular families on, on Shabbat. Nature is not too far away. So uh, on the one hand, a, a, a city divided, where if you stay in your own little quarter, um, you know, you, you, you're, you're quite, quite content. Um, Jerusalem, though, we know is, is a very sensitive topic. Uh, usually at the, uh, with the touch flashpoints are the places where uh, the different religions and cultures meet, that being the Temple Mount, a flashpoint, which is between Jews and Muslims now, a holy place for Muslims, the Dome of the Rock. Uh, and as we mentioned, between the different streams of Judaism, ultra-Orthodox at the, at the Western Wall. And also, uh, for example, if we have the, the Gay Pride Parade in Jerusalem and once a year, it is not just a party, but a very important political statement. Unfortunately, with a lot of heavy guarding because of violence in the past and in the murder of a, of a young woman, a uh, young high school, a high school student uh, a number of years ago. And um, so so. A city that can also express a lot of tension. Um, it, it's certain, as I say, flashpoints, whether it's a time of the year, a time of the month, or a certain border border location. Yeah, it's an incredible amount of diversity, religious, ethnic, national diversity within one city. It kind of boggles the mind, actually. If we talk about what it means to be a reform rabbi in Israel, that answer is also pretty diverse depending on the location and, and depending on, on your background. Now, it isn't, of course, the same as in North America, where we have established congregations with, with buildings uh, in pretty much every major city uh, that you come to, that you just arrive and, and you look up the Reform community. Um, in Israel, it's still very much a pioneering enterprise. The big cities will have a, a Reform congregation or two. Uh, but most other towns will have uh, will have something small or, or fledgling. And a lot of our work, uh, as I spent much, much of the, the past 15 years as rabbi of congregations, a lot of our work is, is outreach. Uh, it, we have communities and, and ministering to those communities and, and celebrating holidays and teaching and, and empowering community members. Uh, to, to be leaders and uh, educated, active Jews, uh, and much, much outreach work. Uh, and I know, I know you were the rabbi most recently at congregation in Sor Hadassah, which is south of Jerusalem. And remind me where you were before that. So I was four years the rabbi of Kila Dorchei Noam in Ramat Sharon, outside of Tel Aviv. In the past nine years, I was the rabbi of Kila Shir Hadash, in Sohadasa, which is a satellite town to Jerusalem. And have you seen the reform movement change and grow? Have you seen, what I keep hearing is that more and more Israelis are seeking out liberal Judaism. Are you seeing that? Absolutely, absolutely. I always like to compare um, compare experiences. When, when we first came to Jerusalem in 2002 as rabbinical students, and we told, especially as a woman, if you're studying to be a rabbi, the reaction was often uh, ridicule and laughter. Oh, where's your payas? Where's your where's your beard? And then I would compare it to uh, to going forward when I was a, first a rabbi, and I would 
tell people that I was uh, that I was a rabbi. And it would instigate all kinds of curious conversations like, oh, you know, do you do you keep Shabbat? What what is what is a reform wedding? You know, how different is it? You know, just a lot of ignorance and thinking was almost like Christianity. I had a, a an uncle of my husband who came who was Orthodox and came to a bar mitzvah that I officiated at, and he looked at the prayer book. He said, "Oh, it's not that much different than ours." And I said, "What did you think?" He said, "I really thought you were Christian." Uh, so a lot of ignorance. And then over the years, when I meet people, I say, oh, yeah, I'm a reform rabbi. I said, oh, yeah, uh, you were the rabbi at my cousin's bar mitzvah. Or I was at this wedding and the rabbi was amazing. Or, you know, oh, oh yeah, we were, we went to the Shavuot, Tikkun Lel Shavuot, went to the study at, at that congregation. So you have people a lot more exposed and they know what Reform Judaism is and the majority of the time when people meet Reform Judaism, they say, oh, yeah, this is nice. This is nice. We, we like this. We can connect with this. Yeah, it turns out that a lot of Israelis are Reform Jews or are liberal Jews, right? Because they're, you know, people call themselves secular, but really they're often having Shabbat dinners and they care about Judaism and they go through life cycle rituals. And so they really are approaching Judaism from a liberal perspective. They just previously hadn't heard that there was such a thing as synagogues that approach Judaism through a liberal perspective. So you can see how it would dovetail really nicely once they can get past the idea that Judaism could look different than orthodoxy. Yeah, I think you and I would definitely classify the majority of Israelis as reformed Jews. They they wouldn't do that. They would call themselves secular, but but the, the values are similar, very similar. And I think another question that comes up in, Judea, in in Israel is is really what is the place of the synagogue? What do I what do I need a synagogue for? Oftentimes, when when I'm outside of Israel, the synagogue is like a meeting place. If I want to go meet Jews, I'm going to go to the synagogue or to the JCC. I, I just have a few places I know, and that's where I go and find Jews, and and with a variety of things happening there. In Israel, I don't need the synagogue or the JCC to find Jews. Right. They're my neighbors. They're the families who I'm, I, I'm in school with. My kids learn about the holidays in school in their secular public school. They, 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 uh, they're the, the community centers offer uh, cultural programs for Shabbat and holidays. And the question really is raised, what do I need a rabbi for? And what do I need a synagogue for? And uh, we often say that the Israelis, what is their adishut, their um, kind of, lack of interest in, in religious matters, because they say, when do I need a rabbi? I need it if I'm having a bris, if I happen to have a son, so to have a brit milah, uh, if I'll have a bar mitzvah for my son, and that's not always mm-hmm. the case, when I get married, and when I die. So maybe the most I'm meeting the rabbinate is four times in my life. For that four times, how much do, how much does it really matter? Now, of course, it's starting to matter more and more to people. But that is, you have to imagine where, where Israelis are coming from vis-a-vis uh, uh, non-Israelis in other countries. Why do you think it's starting to matter more and more to people? I think that there is a sense of, um, of curiosity um, that people do want to know about, about Judaism. And uh, I think maybe even a sense of, of loss that, that, you know, there's always kind of a, a pendulum swing 
that the pioneer generation or the generation that established the state of Israel was very, uh, uh, made a very clear choice to be secular, to be and say anti-religion. Oftentimes when people said I was secular, it was so they could say I'm not religious. And that secular person lights candles on Shabbat and says Kiddush, but his statement is that I'm secular because I'm not religious. I'm not that old country uh, Judaism. And maybe um, it means I'm not, I'm not beholden to it. I'm doing it on my own terms rather than doing it because somebody else tells me I have to. Yes, could be. So now we have the grandchildren of that generation and they're asking themselves, well, well, what did I miss? <laughs> you know, what is this Judaism? Or when I go to the, the army or I go out in the world and I meet Orthodox Jews, especially the, the more modern Orthodox who, who very much integrate into Israeli society and serve in the army. And, and they start telling me all these things about Judaism. They say, and then, then I say, well, you're a, you're a bore. You're an uneducated and not intelligent person. And, and they say, well, wait a second. I am an intelligent person. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm curious also about Judaism and what it has to teach. And, and then again, I want to do it on my on my own terms um, in terms of, you know, singing and, and melodies. You know, there are prayers that are on the radio, right, that they're part of the Israeli culture or phrases that people use that are directly from the, the Talmud. It, it's a part of our culture. And there's this kind of re-embracing of that, that aspect of our culture. Well, and some of it also, I think, is about bringing out voices that had previously been excluded or diminished within the tradition. And, and the reason I bring that up is because you had mentioned to me as well that some of the work that you're doing is around bringing out women's voices within within Judaism. And, and so I wonder, first of all, to what extent are you seeing in Israeli society that women's religious voices are being heard in a different way? And then I'd love if you want to tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing around that. Okay. So the first thing that I want to put out there is that we all influence each other. If I bring the example of the ultra-Orthodox, right? We said on Rosh Chodesh, those young men came to harass us. Every other day of the year, except for those 12 days or 13 days of the year, that there's Rosh Chodesh, I will be uh, in the egalitarian section of the Western Wall, praying, wearing a talit, leading a bar and bat mitzvah, and you will see a few ultra-Orthodox kids or adults walking in quietly, observing curiously, and leaving. Okay? We see each other. We read about each other. We're influenced by each other. So also in Israel, we have, uh, the, the, Israel's becoming a more Jewish society, more religious society. And you could say for any number of reasons, whether it's the higher birth rate of Orthodox families, and especially also ultra-Orthodox families, uh, Israel itself has a higher birth rate than birth, birth rate than other nations. Um, you could see it also in, um, in the, the influence of uh, Mizrahi uh, Jews who have finally, are coming into ownership of their identity and are traditionally more traditional Jew, Jews. Uh, and, and bring that to Israeli society. Um, you see also Reform Judaism embracing more traditions. The fact that we as Reform Jews even wear kippah and talit and tefillin is, is, is a, in a sense, the pendulum swinging. So also in the same thing that we've been influenced by traditional Judaism, like, oh, maybe there is something to wearing talit. 
And the traditional Judaism, the Orthodox Judaism, let's put it, sees women rabbis. And they're not maybe ready for that, but women start learning more. There are so many more women learning. Talmud or uh, women professors of Judaic studies. And even now we're seeing women Orthodox rabbis or poskot or madrichot halacha with all different kinds of titles. So we're, we're seeing that happen also in Israeli society and, and, uh, and abroad. Um, so my personal part of this, this story is that, you know, I really thinking about where, What's my contribution here? Uh, I'm not a native Israeli, and uh, and uh, there is something about being a native Israeli and having homegrown Reform Judaism rather than a transplanted American Reform Judaism to come put it on, put it on uh, Israelis. People are very sensitive about American values being being kind of shoved down your throats all around the world. So there is this sense of of homegrown Judaism, homegrown Reform Judaism that. I can't, I just can't be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I be, and also being as a woman, what, I was always being drawn. I didn't think it was very uh, unusual or special that I'm a woman as opposed to being a man. I know it's an issue also abroad, but it's especially, uh, it's especially draws attention here that people, I don't, when I officiated a wedding, oftentimes because a couple wants to send a very clear message to their families that they are egalitarian. And what better way to do it is to have a woman marrying them under the, the chuppah. So in, I, I began to embrace that, 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 fem- that I'm a female and I bring something unique as a female rabbi to the conversation. That you can be a symbol uh, in addition to playing a role as a rabbi. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, that is, you know, on the one hand, we're we're here for people and to listen to their needs. And on the other hand, we're here to challenge people and to, you know, what is it, leaders to, to help people move forward. And as the reform movement, we're the reform, we're the movement of renewal and and moving forward, uh, maybe a little faster than other Jews are are ready to move. But that's traditionally been been our role. So one of the Things that I began to feel personally and, and to start to share is the, the role of, of liturgy. Now, Hebrew is a very, it's a gendered language. I don't know how much that translates uh, to non-Hebrew speakers, but every, every noun has a gender. You can't not speak in a gendered way. Uh, the table, shulchan, is male noun, Right. Um, the, the, the delet, the door is a female noun, and I'm going to conjugate my, my sentence in, in accord with that. You can't, it's very hard to, to create a gender neutral language. Right. And so, this is a challenge, you know, for people who read the prayer book in Hebrew. I know, you know, in our North American prayer books, all the language is ungendered. God is no longer referred to as he, you know, the, the universe, the table, whatever other words, they're all ungendered. But when you read the Hebrew, you're suddenly talking about God as he all over again. In the minute it says Baruch Atah, that, that means you masculine are blessed. So you can't avoid talking about God in a gendered way as long as you're doing it in Hebrew. Right, right. And um, without going too much into quoting research, there, there's a general sense of, you know, language influences reality, and especially 
uh, as a writer, um, as an I'm aspiring writer, that we know that when 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 books are written, they do have the the possibility of influencing the the culture and changing it. Uh, so we know that words, and we know in her tradition, you know, God created the world with words. Words have huge impact. Words shape reality. And what does it mean to live in a reality where you're always speaking in the masculine? Even if you're a woman, you're speaking in the masculine. The Academy for the Hebrew Language has said women can speak, refer to themselves in the masculine. The masculine is like the, the neutral. Sure. It covers everybody. So that's nice. But how does that influence how I see myself? Am I How included am I in, uh, in setting the tone? And, and, and if I take it to prayer, which is my, my field. So I'll take it in two ways. In one, I, I now, uh, and we, we can also give a lot of credit to Meirav uh, Mikhaeli, who is a prominent politician. She's the head of the Labor Party, and she's very secular, and she speaks in gender, uh, dual gender senses. You always say, at ve'ata. We, we want in saying in, in including men and female genders. And I've begun doing that also in the past years. When I go to speak with children, uh, I say I, I use the gender female pronouns and gender male programs pro- pronouns throughout. And I've had kids come up to me, or parents of children come to me and say, you know, my child noticed that you did it, especially my daughter knows you did it. And she said she suddenly felt more included, that she was a part of the conversation. Right. Well, and I don't know how many of our listeners know Hebrew very well, but in sort of regular everyday Hebrew, the masculine plural um, words are considered gender neutral. So if you're, if I'm speaking to a mixed group of men and women, I would say a temrotzim you want, but that actually is the masculine way of saying it. So the minute you've, in, you, that you've inserted feminine language into a mixed group, you've you've kind of shaken up the language a little bit and it would be noticeable that you've done that, that you've included people who were otherwise sort of assumed but not explicitly included in the way you were talking. When I tell stories, we rabbis like to tell stories. I love to tell stories from the tradition. I started changing the name of the hero from Shlomo to Shlomit Hmm. and to, 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 to tell stories that have women heroes in the stories. Uh, to kids. <laughs> yeah, I tried to start doing that also because it turns out all of our old Hasidic Eastern European stories, they all have male heroes. And and that doesn't include half of the children sitting in front of us. Right. And if I take it also one step further, uh, I took it to prayer and some something that I, I've been working on and started to present in different, uh, different kahalim and different kind of congregational Settings is is uh, prayer in the feminine, uh, changing all of the pronouns and all of the nicknames for God uh, to the feminine, and using coming up with new terms and, and playing with with those terms and speaking in the we as as feminine, um, and it's as we say mitagtel. It really shakes people up um, from the one side of. Uh, you know, I've had men say, wow, now I know how women feel hmm. when we're in a conversation or or in a or in the prayer, because a man says, wow, I felt excluded. I felt like it wasn't talking to me or about me because we and I said to them, you know, we're going to speak in the female plural, but we're including you men, just like women are supposed to feel included in the in the men uh, plural, male plural. And the men said, yes, yeah. I said, I, I didn't feel included. 
And now I understand how you feel. Uh, others said, wow, I think about God when I'm praying to God in the feminine or imagining God as a feminine um, dimui kind of character, uh, uh, then I, um, it changes how I relate to God. Uh, and if I brought uh, a description of God in the feminine as uh, using a power word, like Adon, like, like my master, but in a feminine way, someone said, whoa, wait a second. You know, if I'm addressing God as a female, is, is that, is that a pronoun? Is that, is, you know, and, and understanding that the stereotype is that men are the, the strong and the powerful and the women are the, the embracing and the, and the um, compassionate. Uh, and so it, it, it kind of, at this point, is still just kind of having an awakening to, to challenge and to, to see what our defaults are and how things are deeply ingrained in ourselves in terms of gender, um, gender identification and, uh, and, and, and gendered spiritual life. And, and that I think also reflects what it means, my relationship with God, but also, again, what we, we, what we pray, prayer is like inspiration for how we want to behave in the world. Hmm. So if we are going to, pr- to, to pray, you know, uh, I, you know, we were praying to Elohim Ishmael Chama, we want a, a God who's, who's a, a man who's, of war, right? A man a of war who, who fights for us. And I will be honest with you, there was some times when we're sitting and the rockets are coming from Gaza. And I say, yeah, yeah, I want that God right now. And when I pray those, those Psalms, I'm like, yeah, 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 <laughs> that's good for now. Uh, but, but in the big picture, that, that's not my ultimate prayer. That's not my ultimate request. I want the God who makes peace. And I want to pray to that God as much as possible. So these are some of the things which, uh, which I think are so ingrained in us. And we're just so, in a sense, take them for granted. But if we really delve into them, and when we change something, it draws our attention to how set we were in something. And when someone says, to, uh, when, I, when, when I said to my, the, my daughter's first grade teacher, you know, the girls don't feel like they can play with the ball at recess. And she says, what do you mean? The girls like to draw in the classroom. The boys like to play soccer. And then... When we explored it together, we found that actually that's not not the case. Yeah, I don't know if we realize how deeply ingrained these gender norms are, both about ourselves as humans, what it means to be a girl, what it means to be a boy, and also the ways we think about about God, where where we've essentially made the masculine into the neutral, and that automatically makes anything that's not masculine or anyone who's not who's not male other. Right. It other it others the women, it others all those who are of a gender other than cis cisgender male. Um, and so it, it is something that needs to be shaken up. Um, do you by any chance have an example of the any of the liturgy work that you've written that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah. So the the first thing, I'll take something very simple. Like we all know Osesh Shalom bin Ramav, who ya shalom alenu valko Israel, and with Israel we add like universal, amen. Right? May the one who makes peace in the high places make peace um, for us and for all Israel and for all the residents of the world. So, right, we said that in English, very gender neutral. Mm-hmm. But in Hebrew, Ose Shalom is he, he who makes peace. So, if we change that, it's a Ha Osa 
שלום במרומיה, כי תעשה שלום עלינו ועל כל ישראל ועל כל באות העולם, ואמרו אמן. So it already sounds different. <laughs> And also what I like, if I'm just talking about sound, uh, the female um, endings of words make your mouth open more, right? I'm closing it up. I'm saying, I'm opening myself. I'm opening my mouth when I change it to the feminine. Hmm. And I think it's also a subliminal way of saying I'm opening. I'm opening things, things up. Right, so, opening to others' ideas, opening to the world. And, and I should point out for those who don't, um, who don't understand the Hebrew very well, that you changed both the, the gender of God. You said ha'osah shalom, meaning the, the one who makes peace. Um, and you also talked about ba'ot olam, meaning all of those who live in the world. So the gender of God is feminine and the gender of the, the general humanity that you're talking about in this version of the prayer is also, is also feminine. So I want to, I'll bring something else up. Um, I, I changed uh, the, in the beginning of the Torah service. So in the beginning of the Torah service, we have Kumu Adonai Be'afutsu Oivecha Be'anusu Misanecha Mipanecha Right, get up, God, and, and disperse all of your enemies And get rid of all, and then all of your haters should should fall off the way. Okay, very right. loose translation. It's it's a it's a um, it's a very warrior kind of image. It's mo it's quoted from the Torah. Moses is calling to God to to be this uh, pers pers personage as they set out on their way in the desert. Um, that's nice. Um, but I wanted to imagine I'm I'm coming now to the pinnacle of our service. where we're going to read Torah, and I want to have this inspirational uh, experience reading Torah. And, and in, in also Reform Judaism, we focus on positive, right? We're the ones who say, we, we take out the negative language. We, we don't say, uh, thank God for not making me a slave in the morning. We say, thank God for making me a free person. So I wanted to, to change the, this language. You know, it's a question if, if this is a, a gender issue or not. Uh, so I'll tell you what, what, I, uh, what I added. I took from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of the later books of the writings, the third book of the, the Bible, where the community is coming back to Zion. The, after being exiled to Babylon, now the, the rising power is Persia, uh, ironic today. And they're the ones who are kind to, to the Jewish community and allow the Jews to go back and resettle in Jerusalem and rebuild The second, what is the second temple? I took a quote from there and just, you know, I changed uh, the nickname for God from Adonai, which means my Lord, to Yah. Yah is a, a very open way of saying God. Hallelujah, right? Praise God. And it's also opening up and has sounds like the female ending. So I, instead of the kind of uh, strong man image, I placed Kumu. Let's get up as the same uh, idea. Let's get up now so we can give honor to the Torah and bless Yah, who is your God, Elohot instead of Elohim. It's the feminine version of Elohim. 
Elohotechen instead of Elohechem. It's you is female in the plural. Min haolam ad haolam. From one end of the world to the other end of the world. And for me, that's also a vision of Torah that we're going out with confidence into the world, not afraid, not afraid that we have to protect ourselves from enemies. No, we're going out in friendship and, and unity and sharing Torah uh, with ourselves and all who want to, to come and be a part of that. Is that, uh, you know, certainly the language of God and speaking in the feminine plural is feminine. And then others would say, well, you know, what is, what is feminine about, about anything else in that? And I just want to quote um, a, a feminist liturgy, a, a scholar, uh, Janet Walton. She wrote a book, Feminist Liturgy. And what she said, she actually quoted uh, another liturgical scholar, Mary Collins, who said that one of the goals of feminist liturgy is to ritualize relationships that emancipate and empower women. And uh, Janet Walton added, that in doing so, we subsequently uh, empower all those marginalized by class, race, differing abilities, sexual orientations, and age. Mm. So by empowering women, we empower anyone who has been other, anyone who has been marginalized. And, and I think that fits in also with the Jewish concept, because when are we, how does our tradition refer to marginalized people? Ha'amana hayatom vehager. Who is not the normative? The widow, who's a woman, okay? The, the child, the, 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 the parentless child, so he's, someone's kind of helpless. And the, the gear, the stranger in the land. And they, they go together. So if we, I think it goes to follow, if you empower one, one of those groups, give voice one of those groups, it, it can influence the, um, the, the relationship, how we treat all, all, all marginalized groups. Right. Well, the, and the, that's ultimately the message is that we, we need to empower. It's not that by empowering one, you automatically empower the other, but that when we think in terms of empowering the marginalized, then we will more and more work to expansively empower those who have been marginalized. And, you know, so people always ask, what's the point, you know, why change language? It's just a word. It's just a word on a page. But the reality is, and I love what you've, what you've taught us here is that the words that on, that are on our page influence the ways that we think, that we think about ourselves, that we think about other people and that we think about God. And if, if we think about God in human terms, which for example, Maimonides says, we talk about God in terms that we understand, then that means that we're, automatically othering anyone who's not male by using only male language to refer to God. Uh, so I, I love what you've done here. And I'll point out one more quick thing, which is that the verse that you were just talking about from the Torah service, in most North American reform prayer books, at least, it's not there. It's been removed. It's been excised completely because people are uncomfortable with the idea that it's about enemies. It's about God in scattering the enemies. And so rather than take it out, you've found a verse to replace it that has some of the same ideas, the idea of getting up, of rising together, but instead it's about praise and it's about inclusion. And that to me is what liberal Judaism is all about. How do we find ways to empower ourselves and to reflect our values that are in our text rather than tossing out a verse, rather than tossing out tefillin, tossing out kippah, tossing out talit, we find ways to make these 
um, to make these rituals and these and these um, practices inclusive and reflecting the values that we that we really believe in. Um, so thank you for sharing all that. Do you have time for um, one or two more quick questions? Yeah. Excellent. So um, I told I warned you ahead of time about my my final questions. These are the questions I ask everybody. Um, I'm curious if you could share with us a a ritual, a Jewish ritual that you have found particularly meaningful in your life. And then as well, I'd love to know what book do we all need to read? Okay, so um, an important uh, Jewish ritual that's in a very personal level is every morning saying the, the daily blessings. Um, the first part of uh, that you might open a siddur and uh, of a weekday morning, uh, just the the moda 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 ani, just being thankful for waking up in the morning. The, the idea of having the soul in the body, the the blessing of uh, checking that everything in my body works, and the the blessing, the daily blessings. Thank you, God, for making me who I am, for making me a free person, for Giving, giving sight to the blind, basically helping us to wake up and, and to be mindful of all the very simple, uh, the very basic and important things in life and to remember that day after day, very important ritual for me hmm. every morning. I love that. Yeah, and it, it, it amazes me regularly that Judaism has evolved essentially this way to help us start every day with gratitude. Be grateful for your body, for your mind, for your soul, for your freedom, for, you know, for all these things that we have. There's plenty to complain about. I can find lots throughout the rest of the day. But first thing in the morning, just thinking about gratitude. Yes. So the second question, I, I have a whole series of books, but I'm going to bring down one because it's something that can be accessible perhaps to your listeners to understand Israel and Jerusalem, uh, there is no person, in my opinion, who has ever expressed it as good as the poet Yehuda Amichai. Hmm. Um, and I've read a lot of poetry in the past few years, a lot of Israeli poetry, especially, and, and new poetry. And no one knows how to turn a phrase like him and to say things exactly as, as you didn't realize you were thinking all along. So he has a book which is translated as Hebrew and English. It's called Poems of Jerusalem and Love Poems. So you can you can even learn Hebrew by reading the Hebrew and the English together. And I find him to be a really important inspiration for me uh, because he also has a lot of he brings a lot of Judaism into it and and uh, integrating Israeli identity, Jewish identity, Jerusalem identity, our humanity of, of falling in love. In his case, falling in love with a woman or setting out to travel and how he sees the world. Um, just a master of language, if we're, if we're speaking of language. Perfect. I didn't know you were going to mention that book, but I have to say some of my very favorite poems in the world are from that book. Shirei Yerushalayim is called, right? Songs of Jerusalem. And Shirei Hava, songs are poems of poems of love. Uh, well, Rabbi Stacy Blank, I want to thank you for spending some time talking with me today. This has been so incredibly interesting, um, and I am grateful for your time and for your wisdom. Thank you, my dear friend. I always love talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoy this program, please leave a review on your podcast app. 
and please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7minutetorah. You can also join us in our Facebook group, 7 Minute Torah Listen and Discuss.